you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Welcome to the podcast. I am Aeneas Williams. Part of our podcast series is something we call Storytellers. A chance for NFL players and legends to tell their own story. Today's storyteller is a real treat. Former long snapper, Army Special Forces veteran, and citizen of the world, Nate Boyer. And he brings a story of strength, perseverance, and most importantly, the love for his fellow man and the desire to make people's lives better. My name is Nate Boyer, and very honored to be able to share some of my story uh, with you guys today. In 2004, I sort of was at a crossroads in my life. I was, I was 23. I didn't really feel like I was going anywhere purposeful in the future. I, didn't, I, had, I still didn't know uh, what was missing in my life, but I just had this kind of empty feeling. And I came across this Time Magazine article about the tragedy in Sudan. And it was, you know, it was this photojournalism article about the, uh, the genocide going on in the Darfur region. And just going through that magazine and seeing those images and reading about, you know, these, these villages that are, you know, burned to the ground and the women all raped and the men are off fighting or have already been killed and these children are left abandoned and it's just by the hundreds of thousands, you know, th I think 300,000 had been killed. And I was just like, what, like, how, how is that happening today? <laughs> how is that still existing? It's 2000 and, uh, it was 2004 at the time, you know? So I just made a decision that day I was gonna go over there and volunteer, I was gonna help somehow. And I'd never been to the developing world, never been to Africa, um, certainly never been to a war zone and a place where there's, you know, refugee camps everywhere. So I called every NGO that was out there <laughs> and all of them told me that I, I would not be able to, to volunteer with them because I didn't have a college degree and it's this long process and there's a bunch of red tape. But then I'm also reading about how they're grossly understaffed at the camps out there and they need people. So I was like, well, how is this? If you need people, like I'm willing to go, I'll fly myself. And they just all, they, you know, they told me it wasn't possible. So I made the decision I was just gonna go anyway. And I went to the travel agency, AAA travel agency in Burbank and I bought a ticket to, to the neighboring country of Chad next to the Sudan and figured, I, I just figured out when I got there and I'd find a way to get out there. And so a week later, I fly out, land in the capital of Chad, this town called Jemena, kind of BSed my way onto a, a UN flight that was going out to the camps. And I you know, talked my way into that position, I guess, because you know, I convinced them that, look, I, I'm an American. I don't have anything. Like, what else would I be doing here? I'm supposed to be out there. And even though I didn't have the proper documentation, I slipped through the cracks and, and got out there and, and just spent, you know, uh, I don't know, six weeks maybe at the camp. And it completely changed my life. Just how grateful the people were that an American would leave what we have here to go over there and, and help. I was overwhelmed by that. It wasn't this place where I felt people were just, you know, needy. 
uh, or, or um, begging or any of that. It was just like gratitude. And they were so happy with, with moments of peace they had every day. And like one, you know, a little meal and maybe some clean water, that's it. And, you know, they had like one soccer ball at this camp where all these kids are, they're playing soccer every day with this one ball and that's all they have. And they're just, you know, over the moon, like happy. And it just made me appreciate not only uh, how simple things can be, <laughs> uh, but also made me appreciate the opportunities that we have here in America. And I sort of gained my patriotism over there um, and became you know, really proud of what we have here. And it's not that I was anti-American or anything like that before, I just didn't understand. I didn't had that pers hadn't had that perspective of a place like that. You know, and, and every night I was sleeping on the ground just like them under the stars and I felt the most happy I'd, I'd ever felt maybe because you know, I felt that element of purpose and just uh, yeah, that, that, that peace in the simple things. My last week there in country, I got malaria. And I went down for about three days where, I mean, I just couldn't eat anything. I was, you know, was coming out of both ends. I was sweating like crazy and freezing cold. And, you know, it didn't make any sense, but it was just, I was extremely sick. And uh, so I'm just like laying, they put me up in this little room that had a cot. So I'm laying on this cot, um, trying to get some, some sleep and just trying to feel better and listening to this uh, little radio and it was the first battle of Fallujah was going on. You know, the Marines were over there. And it was like this play-by-play -play of what was happening. And uh, I don't know if I was just, you know, lucid from all the, you know, from the <laughs> drugs I was taking or just that I haven't slept, hadn't slept or ate in a few days, but I just had this vision of myself in the military, you know, and like maybe that's what I would do next. And I came back to the States and I didn't know what I was going to do in the military. I just knew that was something I was interested in. I started doing research, and I, f I learned about the Green Berets, uh, the Army Special Forces. And their motto was De Oppresso Libera, which means to free the oppressed. All of their missions were done alongside uh, host nationals, so indigenous forces. You know, you go to Iraq, you go to Afghanistan, you go to Sudan, and you work alongside those people. You live with them, you know, you train them, and then you fight with them alongside them uh, against a common enemy. And that sounded the most appealing to me because I wanted to continue to work with those people and you know, fight for those who can't fight for themselves and really feel that connection. So that's what I decided I was gonna do. I set out to be a Green Beret and that was my next mission. You know, Really my first Special Forces mission was probably going to the Darfur by myself. And uh, like I said, that, that moment changed me more than anything. But you know, I, so I, I go off to basic training and I was not in good shape when I showed up and I just out, I outworked everybody because I was so determined to not only be in the military but to, to be in the special forces. You know, and it took a year and a half to get through all that training and obviously it was incredibly challenging and uh, you know, I, I, I learned a lot about myself and, and mental toughness and but also just what, what, what the human body's capable of, you know, and what the, I guess the human spirit's capable of if you just make a decision and commit to it and make some sacrifices around that. So I got through it all, earned my Green Beret, you know, headed off first to, to Okinawa out in, in Japan. That's where I was stationed first. Um, you know, from there, I, I did various tours, you know, different, different places in the world. And I went to Iraq and that was a, 
that was, I mean, a crazy experience. Just my, my first deployment, you know, I'd felt, I felt comfortable being in a place like that because of my time in the Darfur, but it's very different when, you know, you're going around in camouflage and, and you know, with weapons and these gun trucks and you're, you know, chasing down terrorists. I mean, that's a, it's a very different mission. Uh, through that deployment, me and my, 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 my special forces team, it's a 12-man detachment, you know, we, we, we trained thousands of Iraqis, whether they were police officers that would become SWAT uh, or army that would become Iraqi special forces and fight, al fight along these guys, you know, and we're, we're chasing down uh, you know, some of the most wanted terrorists in, in, in Iraq, in our region. Towards the end of the deployment in Iraq, I made a decision that I was gonna, I was gonna transition into the National Guard when I got back and I was gonna go back to college and try and play football. I'd never, never played before. It was a huge regret I had growing up. I, I, it was my favorite sport and I just never did it, you know? And that school ended up be, being the University of Texas who <laughs> had, just, had just been to the national championship game uh, the year before and obviously it's a historic program. But yeah, football is just, it's just an escape, you know? And it's, 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 a, it's a great thing in this country where you look up in the stands and everybody's got different political opinions and, you know, different colors and, and all that, but they're all wearing the same team color, you know, and they're all, for the most part, cheering together. Uh, and they don't really care about any of that stuff for three hours. So, I, I, you know, I make the team, you know, get through tryouts and, you know, probably by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I played that first year on the scout team, you know, and every game, uh, Coach Mac Brown had me run out of the tunnel with the American flag, leading the team out, and it was just—it was special, man, to see that, hear that crowd roar every time you do that. And uh, but I wanted to play. I wanted to find a way on the field, so I started uh, long snapping. The the starter was a senior uh, that year, and I'd obviously never long snapped before. And I was, you know, at the time, uh, uh, just just turning 31 years old. You know, long snapped my first football and. That summer, you know, I told you I stayed, was in the National Guard, that summer I went back overseas and I brought a couple footballs with me. And every, every summer while I was in college, I'd go over, uh, last two summers I went over to Afghanistan for about three and a half months and you know, just deployed with the, the Special Forces team again and you know, served my country for, for that time. And then I would trade in my body armor and helmet for my football helmet and shoulder pads. And they, they literally would fly me back the day before training camp would start and go back to Texas and re-enroll in school and, you know, start practicing with the football team. And it was a pretty bizarre juxtaposition there, that kind of back and forth. But, but I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed continuing to serve and being able to go back over there. And, but yeah, I'd bring footballs with me and, you know, practice long snapping. Came back to Texas and that sophomore year, my sophomore year, I won that job, won the long snapping job and, and started for three years. So I, I finished, uh, I actually finished my master's degree at University of Texas that last year playing football. I made the decision that I was, uh, even though I was 34 years old, I was gonna make a run at the NFL and just see what happens, you know. I played in the senior all-star game called the Medal of Honor Bowl out in uh, Charleston and there was a bunch of scouts there. They were watching me snap and like, I talked to four different teams during that process and they said, look, you're gonna have to put on about 35 pounds, but uh, you should go for it, you know. And you know, at the time, I was obviously, I'm, I mean, I'm not very big. I'm, right now, I'm about 5'11", 175, and 
I probably weighed 195 there, and they were telling me I needed to weigh about 230. I started eating like crazy and training different. I moved to, uh, to up to LA and started training at, at Unbreakable Performance Center, which is Jay Glazer's gym. Draft draft time rolls around. You know, I, I get all the way up to 228 pounds. I get a phone call on the last day of the draft from Pete Carroll, the Seattle Seahawks. And so Pete, you know, told me that he appreciates guys with a chip on their shoulder, you know. You know he, he, he was grateful for my service and country and all that, and he's like, but that's not why I want you to, you know, come out here. I want, I want to give you a genuine shot because, you know, we, we, we want people uh, in our locker room, you know, that, uh, that, are, that are willing to fight, you know what I mean? You look at a lot of that team at the time, they had just come off back-to-back -back Super Bowls. A lot of those guys were undrafted, you know, player, you look at, or late round draft picks, they were willing to sacrifice quite a bit to, to get to, to get where they needed to be, to be elite. You know, I felt that same kind of draw as, uh, as I did when I was trying out for the Special Forces, you know, that this is a long shot, but I'm gonna give it a chance. And I went up there, went through training camp. You know, we get to uh, the first preseason game and the team asked me if I want to lead, lead them out with the American flag. And I was like, of course, you know, I'd love to do that. So then before the game, you know, in college, we're not on the sideline when the national anthem's played. And this time, you know, in the NFL, that's, that's obviously what we do. Everybody knows that now. So I'm standing out there as the national anthem's playing. I started to cry because I thought about everything I'd, you know, I guess been through and the, the, the odds I'd overcome to get to that point. Uh, but also I thought of, you know, all the men and women that were still fighting over there right now, and maybe they were watching this game, you know, and I remember what that feeling was like. It was my most special moment on a football field ever, and it wasn't even during a game, you know. It was pre-game. And then the game starts, and, you know, we play, and uh, I did great, but uh, as all great things uh, begin, they must end, and uh, my career was very short-lived. <laughs> that was the only game I'd ever play in. But it was a truly special one, you know, and I'll never forget it. And from that point on, I was always, I was continuing to look for these different challenges. You know, I took uh, some wounded vets and some former NFL players up to climb Mount Kilimanjaro as part of a clean water project with Chris Long. I, I co-founded a nonprofit called Merging Vets and Players with, with Jay Glazer, uh, MVP, where we're bringing combat veterans and former professional athletes together and helping them find purpose uh, once that uniform and identity uh, kind of comes off. The next season, uh, is, it's 2016, and once again, it's during the preseason. I'm not playing this time, but Colin Kaepernick is, is all of a sudden sitting on the bench during the national anthem. And it's obviously garnering quite a bit of attention, and it was just this time where it felt like we were really dividing. You know, people were, <laughs> much like a football game, pick, people were picking their team and were becoming diehard fans of that team at all costs. You know, it's all about proving my point and winning, my team winning. Our country just further divided over this, this anthem issue, right? I, I got reached out to by, you know, several different publications to write an op-ed, you know, and they wanted me to, I think, write an opinion piece. And what it felt like is people wanted me to once again interject or inject my personal, emotional uh, feelings on this thing, which is, in my opinion, was not going to help. You know, it's just going to stir up more controversy. So I, I refused. Finally, the Army Times said, okay, you, you can write anything you want. 
you know, we just need you, we, we would love you to write something and you can, you know, approve the final edit. And, and that's, that's that. I said, okay, because the only way I'm gonna do this is if I write an open letter. I'm just gonna write an open letter to Colin and uh, explain my experience, you know, try to understand uh, his, and that's it. It wasn't gonna be, I'm right, you're wrong, or anything like that. So I just sort of told some of my story through the letter. I talked about, you know, what, what that flag and anthem represent to me, you know? To me, it's, it's not so much about the words to the song. It's what that symbol stands for, you know, these ultimate freedoms and ultimate rights. But I also said, I, I want to hear your story, you know, and I, I'm willing to listen. Because at the end of the day, I mean, to free the oppressed is something that I want to do for the rest of my life. It doesn't have to be in, in uh, Sudan or Iraq or Afghanistan. It can be here in, in, in America. And if you don't feel equal or like you count in some way, I want to work towards making that happen, you know. The letter went out the next morning. It went like crazy viral. And Colin actually reached out to me personally and said he wanted to meet. So I met with him the next day down in San Diego during the last preseason game against the San Diego Chargers. And we sat down in the team hotel in the lobby about four hours before kickoff. And we just talked for you know, a good hour and a half, two hours about our experiences. You know, we, we, we just we talked about everything going on in our country. And we listened to each other. And, and it, was, it was interesting to see how sensitive Colin was to the fact that I'd served, and it seemed like he was sort of searching, uh, I wouldn't say for a way out, but for a way, to, for, for a way in, in which this, this protest or demonstration would, would come across, I guess, I don't know, maybe more open-minded on his side, maybe uh, just something, something different, something where you know, he felt he wasn't disrespecting people, because there was a lot of voices out there, and, he wanted to make sure people understood this is not about the military. This isn't even really about uh, the flag or the anthem. You know, it's about, uh, in his uh, in his eyes, this you know this racial injustice that exists in our country, um, police brutality, all these things. And I understood that, you know. And as much as him sitting hurt me, I still I didn't I didn't really feel that anger anymore that I initially felt. You know, when I first saw that, I had this impulse of just anger and, and maybe even hatred for what he was doing, not for him. But, you know, I also realized that that, that sort of militancy in my mind is not gonna solve this problem, you know. We talked about a, a lot of stuff, you know, and he told me how much he appreciated not only my service, but you know, his family and, and friends he'd had in, in the, both on the police forces and in the armed forces. And, and, and I showed him a couple messages from buddies of mine that were in the special forces, you know, one of which he had uh, he had just come from a military funeral where, uh, you know, the casket's it's draped in an American flag. It was one of his brothers in arms, one of our fellow Green Berets that was killed. And then they, you know, they hand this folded flag to his wife, and it's a very, you know, it's, a, it's an emotional situation. Anybody that wouldn't stand for that in his mind, it just it fills it, it filled his heart with rage. And I showed that message to Colin. And, and, Colin responded to that as well. And so he asked me, you know, what, what do you think another way of demonstrating would be where I, I don't hurt these people because I won't stand? You know, and I thought in a times of crisis like that, I mean, the last thing a hero does is sit it out, <laughs> you know, just the way that that looked, especially like isolated from his team. 
So I said, I said, more than anything, I think you should be alongside your teammates. Whether they, you know, some of them agree with you or disagree with you or whatever, you should embrace them. I mean, that locker room, that's your family, you know. And then I suggested taking a knee instead. I thought it was more respectful. Uh, if he wasn't willing to stand, I thought that was an upgrade in some ways. And um, people take a knee to, to pray and propose to their wives. And, you know, even a, a folded flag is often handed to a family member who loses somebody. And, and sometimes when it's handed, it's, the person takes a knee in front of them when they, when they give it to them. We take a knee at Arlington to pay our respects, you know. And he agreed. He thought that was that was powerful. You know, him and uh, and Eric Reed was alongside him in the hotel there, and and both of them sort of you know thought about it and said, yeah, I, I think we should do that. That that day, uh, or I guess that night when they played the Chargers, the anthem's playing before the game, and I'm actually standing on the sideline next to Colin and Eric uh, while they took a knee for the first time. There was still booze from the crowd and. Uh, which was so bizarre to me because it's during the anthem, you know, and there was a uh, an African-American, uh, I think he was a sailor, someone in the Navy that was singing the anthem uh, that day, you know, and it's Military Appreciation Day. They had a flyover and people parachuting in and all that stuff. It was just a really interesting time, but I, I look at that snapshot of me standing next to Colin while he's taking a knee and I think you know, maybe that's the direction our country needs to head, though. Like, we don't necessarily see eye to eye on stuff. We don't agree on everything. We have different experiences that shape what we believe, but we're still going to have this conversation and listen to one another. And, you know, he's going to respect the fact that I'm standing next to him with my hand on my heart, and I can respect the fact that he's taking a knee. And neither of us have to, <laughs> we don't even have to like each other, <laughs> but to appreciate one another's uh, opinions and respect them. Uh, is the most important thing is that's, that's what I did in the military. That's what I did overseas, uh, and you know that that story garnered some attention for a short time. But then you know the louder voices are, in my opinion, the more extreme ones that are more divisive. You know that don't want to listen. They just want to shout. You know, wait for their turn to shout back. You know, not everybody um, that you know, not everybody that leans a certain way politically. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that they just you know, won't even listen or don't even take into account somebody else's feelings and, and, and their experience, you know? And people need to understand that, you know, that um, because they, they, they feel a certain way or, or, you know, lean a certain direction, um, that everybody on the other side is just, you know, wrong. Like, our, there's no way that half of our country's just good and the other half's just completely evil. It's just, it's, it's silly. And we need to get past that. And I think, I mean, most people in our country understand that. But I don't know if it feels that way right now. We, we just don't seem to have that voice of reason. But it's absolutely possible. We've been through, we've been through a lot in our country. Um, in our history, we've, we've done horrible things, you know, and recovered from that uh, for the most part, you know, and have worked to improve that. Uh, we still have a long way to go, but, you know, if you look back at... Uh, you know, some of the some of the stuff that we've done in the past, uh, I'm not proud of, you know, but I am proud of how we've moved out of that, you know, and, and even from since the civil rights movement to now, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but progress has been made, and we just need to keep improving that and pushing towards that, and all the good people in our country, which is most of us, uh, need to be leading that conversation. 
Thanks for joining us on the NFL Players Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow at NFL Players Podcast on Instagram for the latest player stories and to connect with the NFL Players community. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you.